Tonight's message will be number 12 in the series on the subject of infant salvation, and it will be entitled The Universal Atonement Theory. But before we proceed to examine this view, which is now before us, I think it would help our thinking to again state our reasons for studying this subject of infant salvation and to restate the biblical guidelines which are imposed upon us in our study. The first reason we gave at the outset of this study was to relate the death of Jesus Christ to the millions of infants who die each year, many of whom are aborted before they ever see the light of day. The second reason for studying this subject is to give a comforting hope to parents who have lost a child in infancy. And the third reason is to gain a clearer insight into the way in which God saves sinners. And the fourth reason is to show that our Calvinistic confession of faith is the only system of theology which fairly and fully gives a rational, biblical, and theological basis for the salvation of all infants which live and die in infancy. We are working under four biblically imposed guidelines in our study, and they are this, that all infants dying in infancy are by nature guilty and depraved. Secondly, all infants dying in infancy, if saved at all, are saved by the atonement of Christ and in no other way. Thirdly, all infants dying in infancy, if saved at all, must be regenerated and sanctified by the grace of the Holy Spirit. And fourthly, all infants if sa dying in infancy, if saved at all, must be saved by an application of the atonement prior to their death. Now, those are four guidelines which we must stay within if we're going to stay within the confines of the gospel faith. The four views of infant salvation which we've already investigated were the sinless theory, the incapable theory, the character of God theory, and the children of God theory. Each of these views was found to be inadequate to answer the question as to what happens to an infant which dies in infancy. Each of these views departs from the biblical teaching on man by embracing a Pelagian view of man. This view of man, known as Pelagianism, denies that the nature of man is such as to bring him under the condemnation of God, or that man's sin was so as to affect his moral character in such a way that he could no longer desire to retain the knowledge of the true God. Pelagianism denies both of these. Pelagianism denies that when Adam sinned, that this sin brought him under the condemnation of God. And secondly, it denies that it affected his moral character in any way. The evangelical Arminian joins with the Calvinists now in rejecting the Pelagian view of man's sin as being clearly unbiblical throughout. We will now proceed this evening to examine the evangelical Arminian's views on man's sin, Christ's atonement, and how man enters into a state of salvation. First of all, 
we use the term evangelical Arminianism in distinction from the sacramentarian view of Arminianism as held by the Roman Catholic Church. We will be examining this view in coming weeks. The only difference between Romanism and the present-day view of the so-called popular gospel is that Romanism says grace is conferred through the sacraments of the church, and the evangelical Arminianism says no, it is imparted upon conditions of repentance and faith and evangelical obedience. But both systems are in agreement. It is the free will of man which makes salvation actual and effectual. Now, first, let's examine this evening the evangelical Arminian's view of the Adamic fall and original sin. If we examine their view very carefully, they readily confess that the Bible teaches that as a result of Adam's sin, all his descendants enter this life with a nature that is both guilty and depraved. I must stop and define those two terms. All men enter this life with a nature that is guilty, that is, it is under the condemnation of God. And secondly, all men enter this life with a nature that is corrupted and depraved, that is, it is inherently sinful and opposed to having God rule it. So the fall of Adam resulted in a twofold consequence. It brought man into a state of disfavor with God, and it brought God into a state of disfavor with man. That is, man doesn't love God, and God's wrath is upon man. Now, I would like to read to you tonight to verify this statement that the Arminian position does hold to original sin and the depravity of man. I want to read to you from the seventh article of the Book of Discipline from the Southern Methodist Church. And it reads, and incidentally, this is the old Southern Methodist of 150 years ago. You will find very few Methodist churches which any longer would hold to this confession. But here is what this statement reads. Quote, Original sin stands not in the following of Adam, or the imitating of Adam, as the Pelagians do vainly talk, but it is the corruption of every man that is naturally engendered of the offspring of Adam, whereby man is very far gone from original righteousness, and of his own nature inclined to evil, and that continually." Unquote. Now, that's a Methodist statement of years ago. It is sad to say, in passing, that nearly all contemporary Baptists of today are but immersed Methodists. That is, if they follow the creeds, nearly all Baptists today, if you take the baptism off as to what they now presently believe, you'd find that they essentially believe the same as the Methodists did 150 years ago. But the Methodists were very different from the Baptists of 150 years ago. Now, secondly, I want to read to you what James Arminius stated himself in regard to the view of original sin. He says in this fashion, 
The whole of this sin, however, is not peculiar to our first parents, but is common to the entire race and to all their posterity, who, at the time when this sin was committed, were in their loins, and who have since descended from them by the natural mode of propagation, according to the primitive benediction. For in Adam all have sinned. Wherefore, whatever punishment was brought down upon our first parents has likewise pervaded and pursues all their posterity, so that all men are by nature the children of wrath, obnoxious to condemnation, and to temporal as well as eternal death. They are also devoid of that original righteousness and true holiness. With these evils they would remain oppressed forever unless they were liberated by Jesus Christ, to whom be glory forever. Amen. Now that's the statement of James Arminius. What has he done here? He has carefully stated to the Pelagian that man is born with a sinful nature and is in need of grace and deliverance. The Pelagian, upon which these four other views have been grounded, has denied this and says that man, infants or adults, does not need a Savior as such. But the Arminian position sides with the Calvinist and says that is not so. Man does need a Savior because he is born with original sin in his veins. John Wesley, the founder of the Wesleyan branch of the Methodist Church, says, This is undoubtedly true. Therefore, God does not look upon infants as innocent, but as involved in the guilt of Adam's sin. Otherwise, death, the punishment pronounced against that sin, could not be inflicted upon them. And again, we thoroughly agree with all of these statements which our Arminian brethren present to us. Wesley says, an infant is not born innocent. Now, that was a Methodist. That's not a Baptist, and it's not a Calvinistic Baptist. That's a Methodist saying that infants are not born innocent. They are born with a sinful nature and are guilty and depraved, and they die. And they could not be exposed to death unless that they were guilty of something that was worthy of death. Hence, the Arminian position is that they believe that all infants fell in sin when Adam sinned. To this, we agree with them. Now, let's progress on secondly to the evangelical Arminian's view of Christ's atonement. They hold that immediately after the fall of the race in Adam, and immediately after the pronouncement of God of the curse upon man, that God announced the gospel of a universal atonement found in his Son. Let's go back to Genesis chapter 3 and verse 15 and see how this is presented. Genesis chapter 3 and verse 15. Adam has sinned now. He has fallen. God is pronouncing a curse upon the race in Adam. And with all of its consequences now, they're going to be under the guilt of condemnation, 
and they have inherited in Adam a corrupt nature. But immediately upon the fall, God pronounces a universal atonement which offsets and cancels out that condemnation which brought about by Adam's fall. In Genesis 3 and verse 15, we read of him speaking to the devil himself, that verse 15, I will put enmity between thee and the woman, and between thy seed and her seed, it shall bruise thy head, and thou shalt bruise his heel. That is, the Arminian understands this to be in this way, and we agree with him that this is the first pronouncement of the gospel in the Bible. That upon the fall of Adam, there is a gospel, a good news that was presented. Instead of bringing Adam into actual judgment and condemnation right there and consigning him to an eternal destiny of hell, God pronounced a gracious announcement of a Redeemer that was to come. This Redeemer would be exposed to the inflicting damage of Satan inflicting a blow upon his heel. And in turn, this Redeemer, which would come forth out of the seed of the woman, that is, from the human race, which I think also here can read be read between the lines, a reference to the virgin birth of the Lord Jesus Christ in the seed of the woman, that this seed of the woman, the Lord Jesus Christ, shall in turn inflict a fatal blow upon Satan himself so that God will destroy his adversary Satan, not directly by his own agency, but through the agency of a human being of his own choosing, the Lord Jesus Christ. Now this we are agreed upon. But the evangelical Arminian says that what is included and in this gospel announcement is that with all of what happened here in the garden, which brought man under the condemnation of God, Immediately, God canceled that out with a universal justification by an application of the universal atonement of Christ to all men upon their birth, so that all infants enter into this life inheriting original sin, but also inheriting life in the Lord Jesus Christ, so that the life cancels out the guilt wherein that they inherited in Adam. And while that they are not restored to the state of innocence as Adam was, still they enter this world not guilty. Now we'll go on and examine it in just a uh, little bit further to see uh, how else they view this. Now the design of the atonement, as held by the Arminian, was to remove man's guilt which exposed him to condemnation, now listen carefully, and replace Adam and his descendants in a gracious state of probation. Adam was placed in a natural state of probation. If he had met the conditions of God's will, he would have been rewarded with eternal life. The Armenian says that God gives all men a second chance to save themselves by canceling out the condemnation which they deserved in Adam, Christ bearing that, 
so that now Adam and all of his children shall have a gracious state of probation, wherein if they will meet the new conditions which God has imposed upon them, then God will work with them and eradicate the nature of sin that is within them so that they might all be able to enjoy eternal life in the world to come. Now I say again, the design of the atonement, as stated by the Arminian, was to remove man's guilt, which exposed him to condemnation, to place him in a gracious state of probation, wherein if he, by acts of his own free will power, performs the conditions of repentance, faith, and evangelical obedience, will be given the Spirit's ministry of regeneration and sanctification to eradicate his corrupted nature so as to prepare him for the holy life which heaven requires. Now let's look carefully then. The Arminian view of the atonement is twofold. One, Godward, the atonement is universally applied to all infants at birth, so that God is pacified and they are no longer under a state of condemnation. Now, this is what is known as semi-Pelagianism. That is, it is not Pelagianism in that Pelagianism denies that infants are born sinners. The semi-Pelagian, or the Arminian, says the infant is born a sinner, but immediately upon his birth there is an application of the blood which cancels out his condemnation. It does not do anything to his corrupted nature, and the only way that his nature can be changed is if the sinner will permit God through acts of repentance, faith, and obedience, then God will work with his nature and eradicate it so as he can enter into heaven. Thus, the infant is born in a state of salvation as a redeemed sinner. Now, reflect upon that. He is born already redeemed, but he's still a sinner. Now, don't let that upset you. I'm a redeemed sinner. Okay? You are too. We're all redeemed sinners if we're in Christ here tonight. But the evangelical Arminian's view is that all infants are born redeemed sinners. Not natural sinners, redeemed sinners. They have already had the blood applied to them. Now, this is where the view comes from, that they are saved or safe. They're safe in that the blood of Christ covers their original sin. We'll see next week how the Catholics handle this. They say, no, no. The only way that infant's original sin is dealt with is through the grace of baptism. Then when that is applied, then original sin is eradicated, and the sinner is brought out from under condemnation. But the evangelical Arminian says, no, it's not through baptism, it's through one's natural birth that the blood is applied. Say it again. The infant is born in a state of salvation as a redeemed sinner in that Christ's death has removed them from being under the curse of original sin. As man lost his life in Adam, so he is given life again in the second Adam. You see how it works? 
This is called semi-Pelagianism. Now, I'd like to read to you a statement which verifies this. Find it here in just a moment. Here, a Methodist theologian, professor of systematic theology at Vanderbilt University, states the case in this way. We see thus that gracious ability and prevent grace are a result of Christ's atoning work. The effects of the righteousness of the second Adam are coextensive with the sin of the first Adam. What we lose in Adam, we gain and more than gain in Christ. For if through the offense of one many be dead, much more the grace of God and the gift by grace, which is by one man, Jesus Christ, hath abounded unto many. As by the offense of one judgment came upon all men to condemnation, even so by the righteousness of one the free gift came upon all men unto justification of life. That is, the benefits of Christ's righteousness and atoning death are equal with Adam's sin. If through the first Adam man became a sinner, through the second Adam he became a redeemed sinner. Christ's atonement did not remove the effects of the fall and place the race back where Adam was in a state of moral innocence, but it provided for all the consequences of Adam's fall and for the ultimate and entire removal of all sin. Now, here we see then how the Arminians' view of the atonement works. It cancels out guilt unconditionally, but it removes man's sinful nature conditionally because it is held that God cannot do anything with man's nature without violating his free will. So man's nature cannot be made holy unless man first performs conditions of grace. Repentance, faith, grace is given. Repentance and faith, regeneration, then will be the reward of that. That is, God cannot do anything with the sinner's nature until the sinner gives the consent to do so. Conditional application of the Spirit but unconditional application of the blood in the birth of the child. Now, in moving on very quickly, I want to now look at the evangelical Arminian's problems and his dilemma which he gets himself into when he holds to this position. While the Arminian position of salvation is intelligent, as far as adults are concerned, It utterly prohibits God from taking an unholy infant into heaven, seeing as how the infant cannot meet the conditions of grace, cannot repent and believe, so as to permit God to change its sinful character and nature. Now, Selah, think about that for a moment. The evangelical Arminian's position of salvation is intelligent as far as adults are concerned. 
but it utterly prohibits God from taking an unholy infant into heaven, seeing as how the infant cannot repent and believe, so as to allow God to regenerate and sanctify its nature. Even though the Arminian view of Christ's death removes every shred of guilt from the infant, God still has on his hands a corrupt and depraved creature which cannot be taken to heaven without sanctifying and cleansing its nature. Now, what will the Arminian do with this dead infant? If you are an Arminian, or if you would take the position of an Arminian, what would you do with a dead baby? You cannot send it to hell, because it's not guilty. The blood of Christ has supposedly already been applied, and the guilt has been removed. It can't be punished. The punishment has been lifted. But you cannot take it to heaven because it's unholy. And by your own position you have stated and acknowledged it is born with a corrupt nature of original sin. The atonement of Christ must be of a double cure. It must save from sin and make us pure. It must not only save us from the wrath of God and pardon us, it must cleanse us to make us inhabitable in that holy land known as heaven. What will the Arminian do with the dead baby? He cannot send it to hell because it's not guilty. And he cannot take it to heaven because it's not holy. Now then, let's follow on. What can he do with it? He cannot regenerate it unconditionally because if he did so, he would become a Calvinist. For this is what Calvinists hold, that not only is the blood of Christ applied unconditionally to the child so as to remove it from the guilt of God's condemnation, but the Calvinist holds that the application of the Spirit unconditionally, without repentance and faith, regenerates the infant. The Arminian cannot unconditionally regenerate it because he must give up his Arminianism and become a Calvinist. What will he do with the dead infant? He cannot then turn and deny the infant's depravity because then he would cease to be an Arminian and become a Pelagian. He's in a dilemma, a terrible dilemma. And I had the opportunity of talking with a man about three or four weeks ago about this very issue. And he had asked me in, in Memphis, well, how then did I explain infant salvation? He didn't know I'd been spending a whole summer in dealing with the subject. And he originally acknowledged that infants were born with a sinful nature. But he said, I'm not a Calvinist, I'm a, I don't know what I am, but I know I'm not a Calvinist. 
But he says, I believe infants are, are sinful. Then I said, what are you going to do with, a, with that sinful nature? Are you going to take it to heaven? And he said, well, I just change it. I said, then you'd become a Calvinist. He said, yeah, you're right. I said, what are you going to do with that dead baby? And he said, well, wait a minute. I don't believe that baby has sinned until it commits its first act of sinning. I said, now you just ceased to be an Arminian and now you're a Pelagian. You've denied what you originally said and because you're hopscotching around because you don't have an answer to the solution. And the poor man had never, ever been confronted with it. Sort of like some of the people that run around with bumper stickers on their on their cars, Christ is the answer. I always want to ask them, what's the question? What's the question? What's Christ the answer to? He's the answer to man's dilemma. How to be justified before God. But you've got to have a question and understand the question before you can appreciate the answer. So the Armenian cannot deny the baby's depravity. That would be embracing Pelagianism. But the Armenian cannot give the child an after-death probationary period to mature into an adult and then determine its own destiny, because that would be then confessing that the Armenian system has no solution to the problem of infant salvation. And we'll be looking at the after-death probation view here in a few coming weeks, the Lord willing, such as limbo, and how, what, how that it has to take care of there. But some say, well, we just don't know how infants are saved. We believe that they have to be given a second chance after this life to grow into an adult, and then they will determine their destiny. But what that is but confessing is that there's no way an infant can be saved in this life if it dies. In this life. It's got to grow into an adult in the next life, and then have its destiny determined there. Now I want to read to you a statement from Richard Watson, who is looked to as the most thorough writer presenting the evangelical Arminian's position, and he recognizes this problem. And you may read books, I'll spare you the time of going to your bookstore. You will not find an evangelical Arminian anywhere attempting to answer this question as to what happens to an infant which dies in infancy from an Arminian position. They will always change their Arminianism and either run to Calvinism, unconditional regeneration, or they'll run to Pelagianism and say the innocent's born. One more sentence. The Holy Spirit may be given to children. Divine and effectual influence may be exerted on them to cure the spiritual death and corrupt tendency of their nature. Now, what has the man just confessed? He's confessed that we do not know how infants are saved unless perhaps the Holy Spirit does something upon their nature. And that's what we're saying. The Spirit does do something 
upon their nature unconditionally. But you listen, as we're going to show now, if you acknowledge that God can save one human being unconditionally, then you've opened yourself up to embrace the whole system that God saves every human being unconditionally. And this is why what the Methodists cannot have and the evangelical Armenian cannot have. If you remember from the previous messages, the Pelagians that we quoted said, If you acknowledge original sin, the Calvinists have the position. The Arminian acknowledges original sin, but he cannot get his way out of the dilemma. Because if he acknowledges original sin, then the only remedy for original sin is the unconditional imputation of Christ's righteousness to the sinner. So you must either be a Pelagian and deny original sin, or you must consistently become a Calvinist and believe that God saves all sinners the same way. Not one one way, not one one another way, not a baby one way, an adult another way. All men are saved the same way, through an application of the blood of Christ as given by the ministry of the Holy Spirit upon human nature. Now then, this is Mr. Watson's confession. He concedes to Calvinism. But another Armenian professor goes the other route. His name is Dr. Curtis. He is also deceased, professor of systematic theology at Drew Theological Seminary. I want to read to you what his statement is in regard to this matter of how you must answer from an Arminian viewpoint the destiny of a dead infant. Now, he professes to be an Arminian, but he acknowledges that there is no way to solve the problem of how an Arminian can account for the salvation of a baby. And he says this. Now, listen carefully. I now remember only one Arminian theologian who seriously tries to say a consistent word concerning this difficult matter. And he's referring to the man I just recorded before, Dr. Watson. He's the only Arminian theologian who's tried to say a consistent word about this matter. And Dr. Watson says that the only answer we can have is that maybe the Holy Spirit does something. Maybe. But this man knows that if he consents to that, he's given up his case and he must become a Calvinist. So here's what he says. Indeed, the usual Arminian procedure is to make the stoutest contention against Calvinism on this point, that is, lamblast the Calvinist for the way they say uh, that God saves sinners, then suddenly to borrow the very heart of the Calvinistic philosophy, discussing it under some phrase as unconditional regeneration, so as to coerce the children into salvation. Whatever failure we may have in our thinking, let us never do that. 
Never should we admit that any human being could be saved by omnipotence. Never, never should we admit that any human being will be saved by pure divine favoritism worked out in a providential plan. I say it carefully, but I say it with every atom of the manhood that I have, that if one moral person can anywhere, by any process whatsoever, be coerced into righteousness, then all our sense of God-given equity demands that all men shall be saved. Could I be a necessitarian for one swift instant, I would have to be a universalist forever. Now, what is that man saying? He is saying there is no way that we can consent that God can save a person by a divine act of his will. And if he should do it to one person, he is obligated to do it to every person. So that he said, if I believe that God, by a divine act of power, saved one human being, I would be obligated to believe that all human beings will be saved because God's power is unlimited. Now that's frantic. In fact, it's worse. It's brutality. If the infant, the idiot, the lunatic, being by nature helpless and incompetent to save themselves, be taken into the arms of the omnipotent power of God and born into heaven in happiness, this man would dare to stand and say, that's not fair. That's brutal. That's cruel. If one of my infants was burning inside of a home. And if I rushed in that home and carried that infant out upon my shoulders, would I be found guilty in the eyes of public opinion as being unfair if I left some monster like Goliath in there who loved his own pleasures that he was practicing and would rather burn up than leave them? If I left him in there and carried one of my own infants out, what segment of public opinion would rise up and cry, Jim Gables, you didn't treat that man fair? Hmm? How can anyone get to heaven if God doesn't carry him there? Hmm? How is Dr. Curtis going to get to heaven He's either going to have to kill himself or God Almighty is going to have to carry him. One way or another. And I'm glad that God carries sinners to heaven by the power of the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. There's power, power, wonder-working power in the precious blood of the Lamb. So one Arminian takes the position, I think our only solution is to acknowledge unconditional regeneration of my miraculous power of God upon that baby. And the other Arminian theologian says, no, no. I would rather deny God the right to take an infant to heaven by a divine act of his power. And so what does he do? He goes on to explain how that after the infant dies... God allows that infant to grow up in a life after this life 
and then receive another third state of probation by which he can determine his destiny. So he has confessed that he as a Methodist has no solution to the salvation of an infant. Now here are the two leading ones. One says, I don't know unless the Spirit regenerates. The other one says, there's no answer unless it's found on the other side of the life. So the evangelical Arminian position, in essence, has to come to the conclusion it has no answer as to how a baby is saved in this life. It has an answer how adults can be saved through repentance and faith and obedience, and then God will continually grant grace to eradicate the nature, but no way for an infant to be saved. Now, how does the Arminian get himself into such a position? How does he get himself there? First of all, by affirming that God, quote, limited himself when he created man with a free will, unquote. If you hold to that view, you're going to paint yourself into a corner when it comes to the matter of infant salvation. The Arminian's main premise is that when God created man, he imposed a self-limitation upon his power where he cannot act upon a human being's nature without violating its free agency or its free will. Now, of course, if that's the case, if God has placed himself and what he will do and not do, and he's stated that there's some things which he will not do, then let's don't pester him to do it. Okay? If God has said that he will not interfere with man's free will in the matter of salvation, then let's don't pester him to save anybody. Hmm? What right have you got to pray to God to save a person if by that you mean God do something upon him to make him want to be saved? What right have you got to pray that if God has already said, I'm not going to touch man's nature? Don't bother God with such peripheral things. He said, I'm not going to answer that prayer. I created man with a free will. When I did so, I limited myself. I can do nothing until man's free will allows me. Now, don't you bother praying, Jim Gables, for me to go over there and do something with your uncle's free will because it's off limits. You ever heard an Armenian pray, Oh, God, make somebody savable? Hmm? You ever heard that? No, you don't hear people praying like that. Oh, God, save my aunt. God, save my brother. What are you praying? For God to do something to bring them to the Lord Jesus Christ. That's what you're praying. And he's got to do something in the nature, to change that nature, to incline it, to come to Christ. That's what you're praying for, the power of the Holy Spirit working in the life to change the nature of the sinner. Now, secondly, the Armenian gets himself in this dilemma not only by saying that God limited himself when he created man with a free will, but the Armenian gets himself in this dilemma by his view of the design of the atoning death of the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, all that are Christian believe in some way or another in the death of Christ. But the question is, 
What did God have in mind when he had Christ die? What did he design the death of Christ to secure, to produce? The effect of the atonement in the mind of God was either to save all men or to render them savable. The evangelical Arminian says that the death of Christ was not designed in the mind of God to save anyone in particular, but it was merely designed to remove that obstacle of God's wrath off of him so as to render that person savable if he will, by an act of his own free will, fulfill the conditions that would lead to salvation. Repentance, faith, and evangelical holy living. So the design of the death of Christ that the Arminian sees is that Christ did not die to actually secure the salvation of anyone in particular, but merely to give all men a gracious state of probation wherein they are rendered savable if they will meet the new conditions. Same as Adam was prior to the fall. Adam was created savable if he would meet the conditions. If he had met the conditions, there would have been no grace. But the Arminian says that it would be salvation by grace in that instead of condemning all men as they deserved it, God gave them a second probationary state to save themselves. But the death of Christ is not designed to save anybody in particular. Now then, if the death of Christ was designed for all members of the race so as to actually secure their salvation, then universalism is the logical and the necessary result. Everybody's going to be saved. And this the Arminians deny. Then the atonement, then, according to their view, was made for all in such a way as to render all savable. But how can this universal Savability be converted into actual salvation? And the Arminian answer is that through voluntary, repeated acts of repentance and faith and evangelical obedience translates the grace of God from savability into salvation. But now we're ready to ask a question. How is infant savability converted into salvation? The child is incapable of performing the translating acts of grace. If God performs the act and converts savability into actual salvation unconditionally, that would be Calvinism. And if Calvinistic upon this one point, then you would have to be consistently, logically Calvinistic throughout. But the infant cannot convert his savability into salvation. Then if he dies in that state, all that can be said of that little innocent infant or that infant is this, that he died savable, but he died unsaved. Is that the good news that I can give to the grieving hearts of a young couple? A middle-aged couple? Is it, my hearers? 
Is that all I can tell them that Christ has done for their child? He died to make your baby savable. But the child was corrupt in its nature and had no way of converting savability into salvation because it could not repent and believe. So all I can say to that parent, if I'm an Arminian, your child died savable, but he died unsaved. Hmm? What appears to be such a beautiful picture suddenly burst at the gravesite of an infant. No hope, no hope there. Now, the third way in which the dilemma, or the Armenian gets himself into this dilemma, is then by applying the blood of Christ to all infants, whether they live or die, in their infancy. Now, follow me very carefully as we come to this conclusion. The Armenian gets himself into further dilemma. He applies the death of Christ to every infant. That means every infant is a redeemed sinner. Until they become an adult. If they die, they can't be punished. But not all infants die. Then what is an adult? What is an adult? Now listen. If a baby is born, made a partaker of the redeeming blood of Christ, removed from the condemnation of God's wrath, then ev- and then lives out of its state of infancy and matures into an adult, it must apostatize. Then every adult is an apostate from grace who was once saved as an infant. Now, what does the Bible teach about apostasy? We ask the Arminian, then how do you save this adult who was once saved, and now he's apostatized as an adult? And the Arminian says, well, you just apply another application of the blood. Ah, the Bible says that there's one application of the blood per sinner. One application per sinner. Hebrews chapter 6, it is impossible for those who were once enlightened and have partaken and so forth, that if they fall away to renew them into again into repentance, it is impossible. Once a person truly apostatizes, there is no second application of the blood. Hebrews chapter 10, for if we sin willfully after we have received the knowledge of the truth, there remaineth no more sacrifice for sin. Jesus Christ would have to come back and be sacrificed over and over again. And, beloved, that's why the Catholics have the position of sacramental grace. That's why they offer up a new sacrifice every Sunday morning, or Saturday night for that matter, is so the sinner can have a new application of the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. Christ has once suffered for sins. And once that blood is applied, if it doesn't get the job done, then you're not going to have it applied again. If it's applied, my hearer, 
to that baby, and it cannot keep that baby in a state of eternal life, and that baby apostatize as an adult, then there is no more salvation for that adult. There's a dilemma. Now the summation. Evangelical Arminianism has a built-in inconsistency in that it allows for an unconditional application of the blood to the life of an infant, but forbids an unconditional regeneration of the spirit. Now, that's self-inconsistent. If God can apply the blood to that baby without the baby's consent, then it's inconsistent to say that God can't apply the spirit's regenerating work without the baby's consent. Hmm? You can't get all upset and say that God violates the free agency of that baby if he'd work upon it by the Holy Spirit when God has already unconditionally violated it by sending the blood upon that. No, if you're going to hold the one, you've got to hold the both. got to hold the both. And if God applies the blood of Christ, that little baby, so as to remove him from the wrath of God and declares him not guilty, then bless God, the same ministry of the Holy Spirit can regenerate the nature of that child and sanctify it and make it holy so as to enable it to seek Christ as its Lord and Savior. Evangelical Arminianism, in conclusion has no solution to the salvation of an infant. Here is the way that it works in this summation statement. The Arminian theory of infant salvation may be run out to this manner. All infants fell when Adam fell. All infants became guilty and depraved when they fell. All infants were delivered from the guilt of sin when Christ died. Now, follow me. No infant is delivered from the depravity of sin except by the regeneration and sanctification of the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit never regenerates and sanctifies except on the condition of faith and repentance. But no infant as such can repent and believe. Therefore, no infant is savable because it cannot give its consent to being born again. There's your syllogism working itself right out. You cannot be an evangelical Arminian and give any consolation at all in an intelligent fashion that there is salvation in your position. But bless God, Jesus Christ came into the world not to create a problem, but to offer a solution. He actually came to save sinners. And he gets the job done. He's going to save all those he came to save. Every one of them is going to come into the fold, whether they be infant or adult, because Jesus shall see the travail of his soul and shall be satisfied. I'm glad that I can preach a gospel to parents that gives them a hope of their children in infancy, that if that child dies in infancy, they die as an object of the electing love of the Father, having applied the redeeming blood of the Lord Jesus Christ and been made a partaker of the regenerating work of the Holy Spirit, making it holy 
and justified in the sight of God, prepared for heaven and the world to come. I rejoice in a gospel such as that. And I rejoice that I don't have to stand before the grave of an infant and say, Now, Jesus did all he could to make you savable, but you died unsaved because you died with an unholy nature and you could not repent and believe and change that nature. I thank God for the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ.